If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that's our scripture reading for this morning. And before we read it, let me, let me pray for us. Our Father, we come before you again, we come to your word, we come to hear from you, we come to see Jesus uh, in all of his glory as our Savior and as our King. We pray that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, minds to understand, and we pray that by your Spirit you would continue to renew us as we look upon Jesus and believe in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, our scripture reading is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is the biggest problem that you have? Do you ever try to just ignore it or hope that maybe it would go away? Well, there was a time in Israel's history when their biggest problem as a nation was that they were in exile. Because of their sin, God had removed them from the promised land. He had taken them into Babylon. And this was a problem that, of course, it was impossible to ignore. They couldn't play dumb. They they couldn't rationalize it away. Uh, They knew they weren't on vacation in Babylon. Uh, They were in exile. They were oppressed. And everyone knew it. Well, our biggest problem as human beings is actually that we're in, we are spiritual exiles. Because of human sin, God has sent us out of his presence. Uh, God created humanity good in the beginning. Uh, He put us in a perfect world where we dwelt in in perfect fellowship with God in the garden. But we have sinned, which, which broke our fellowship with our creator it caused us to be cast into exile from the, God, from the garden. It corrupted our hearts and it brought all kinds of misery into the world. We try to ignore this, right? but there are signs, right? Signs that the world is not what it should be and we know it. Right? I mean, we, we, we live in, in times of sadness and depression. We have feelings of alienation or, or inferiority. We, we have a sense of guilt and shame. 
We have sinful habits that we can't get over, sinful compulsions that we, we know are wrong, but we just keep doing it. We have a heart that, that's out of control. We face disease and suffering and death. And all of those things are signs that something's wrong. The world is not the way it should be. We're living in exile from the garden. Well, God returned uh, to his exiled Israelites. He, he met them in Babylon and brought them back to the land. And the message of John the Baptist is, is about God coming to us to bring us back to himself. The message of John the Baptist is about God's return in Jesus to free us from spiritual exile. Our outline this morning is actually completely different than the one in your bulletin, I apologize, but it's, it's simple. It's three points. Uh, the, the coming of the king, uh, the discretion of the king, and preparing to meet the king. Three points. The coming of the king, the discretion of the king, and preparing to meet the king. Well, we come to Matthew chapter 3, and suddenly there's, there's a new character in the story, uh, the character of John. Now, everybody in Matthew's day would have known John the Baptist well, uh, so he didn't need to have a long intro for this person, but he simply says, in those days, which is a very general time marker, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. And John's message really involved two things. It involves a command, right, repent, but primarily it involves an announcement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the fact that it's at hand uh, doesn't mean that it's coming in a little bit. It doesn't mean that, that uh, it eventually will be here, but it means that it's here, right? It's at hand. When something is at hand, it has come upon you. That's what John is saying. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. It's here. Of course, the big question for us is, what in the world does that mean? Right? What does it mean uh, that, that it's coming? What is coming? What is the kingdom of heaven? And, and Matthew explains John's message by quoting scripture. Matthew, uh, remember, you may remember, he sees the story of Jesus as a fulfillment of everything that God has been doing in history. And so Matthew, when he wants to explain John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus, he, he quotes Isaiah. He quotes one particular verse out of Isaiah. He says, John the Baptist is the one spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes one verse, which really it reminds us of the whole passage. The people in Matthew's day would have known scripture very well. And so they would have read that verse and they would have said, ah, I know that's out of Isaiah chapter 40. So what we're going to do just for a minute is look at Isaiah chapter 40 in order to understand what John is saying. So if, you, if you'll turn there, Isaiah chapter 40, you'll notice the first two verses read like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The message in Isaiah is one of comfort. Comfort that her sins are forgiven. That she has received punishment and it's done with. It's one of comfort. 
And of course, the background, as, as we mentioned earlier, Israel, they were God's people. They dwelled in God's land with him. But because of her persistent rebellion, Israel was judged by God and was taken into exile, taken into Babylon as punishment for her sin. So Isaiah's message is intended to comfort his exiled people. It's intended to to say to these people who are in exile, though it was written years beforehand, intended to say to them, "Your, your, your warfare is ended, your battle is done, the punishment is over, and you're going to return. God is going to come and bring you back. And notice what we're told next in Isaiah. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. See, Isaiah is saying God is coming. The Lord is coming. He's coming to deliver his people. And that's why in the end of this passage in Isaiah 40, it says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with them and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. See, do you see what it it means for the kingdom to come? It means God is coming. He's coming to a people who have long laid under his hand of discipline. He's coming to a people who were in exile, to a people who were oppressed. He comes to reward his people. He comes to care for them tenderly as a shepherd cares for his flock. The Isaiah 52 passage we read earlier as well continues these themes. There we're told that the good news of peace, of happiness and salvation, according to Isaiah, is your God reigns. God, the king, is on his way. This is the reason for Isaiah to lift up your voice, to sing for joy. The Lord is returning to Zion to comfort his people, to redeem them from trouble, to bear his holy arm, and to demonstrate his saving power. God is coming to bring his people back from exile. Then Isaiah 57, again, we read earlier, tells us God was angry with Israel because of her sins, but he will not be angry forever. Now he's going to heal and lead and restore and comfort. See, Isaiah's message in Isaiah 40 is one of comfort. God is going to come. He's going to bring his people back from exile in a new exodus, so to speak, in a new return. He's, He's going to lead his people through the wilderness back to their homeland. But, of course, that happened, right? That, that happened. Uh, Israel did leave Babylon. They did return from their exile. Uh, God uh, restored them to the promised land. He fulfilled his promises in Isaiah. So why John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist comes, and if God's way had already been prepared, if, if, if he had already led his people through the wilderness, according to what Isaiah's prophecy had been fulfilled, Why does Matthew see these verses fulfilled in John the Baptist? When the New Testament uses the Old Testament Testament in this way, we have to ask, what's it doing? What's going on? What Matthew is saying is, is there's a greater restoration coming. It's not a restoration from physical exile, but it's a restoration from a spiritual exile. 
God, yes, he fulfilled his promises in Isaiah. He restored his people from their physical exile in Babylon. But now he's going to do something like that, but even better. So here the message of the kingdom of heaven being at hand is we are living in, in, in exile from our father. The physical corruptions of the world, the spiritual corruptions of our hearts, they're just signs of that exile. But John the Baptist is preparing the way for King Jesus. God come in human flesh to deliver his people from spiritual exile, to restore us to the Father through death for our sin, to renew the world and to establish again his reign of peace and joy over the earth. See, the Spirit of God is is coming, is coming one day to renew the world. And yet the Spirit has not yet renewed the whole world. Sickness, corruption, disease, and death are all around. According to Scripture, the day of renewal is coming, but not yet. But Jesus is coming. Jesus came. And John tells us when he came, he brought a foretaste of that renewal. Notice verse 11. No, I'm skipping down to the end of Matthew 3. Back in Matthew 3. Skipping down to the end, but verse 11 in Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, Jesus comes to bring the Spirit as a foretaste of things to come. The Holy Spirit comes to renew us as a foretaste of the renewal of all things. John says Jesus would come and and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, here meaning the fire of purification. And God is one day going to purify the whole world, but he begins by purifying his people through the Holy Spirit. And so John's message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come to reconcile us to the Father, to bring the renewal of all things by pouring out his spirit on his people. That's the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of Jesus, come to restore us from exile and renew us by the Spirit. So we've looked at the the coming of the king. Now we're going to talk about the discretion of the king. And we're we're going to come back to verses 4 through 9 in Matthew 3, but I, I want to look at the end first, verses 10 through 12. Because John's message, though it's a message of the the coming of the kingdom and a message of restoration and renewal, it's not all happiness and joy, is it? The same king who comes to bring restoration also comes to bring judgment. We see the discretion of the king in, in verse 10. Verse 10 says, even now, John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, implicitly, John is saying there are two kinds of trees in the world, two kinds of people, those who do and those who do not bear good fruit. One is cut down and thrown into the fire, the other is not. Then verse 12 has similar imagery. He moves from farming fruit trees to farming wheat. And farmers with their, would beat their wheat so that the edible grain would be separated from the chaff or the husk. Uh, You you ever notice when you eat peanuts, if you crack open the peanut, there's sort of that filmy stuff around the peanut, that little papery stuff. That's kind of like like chaff, only chaff is less edible, right? You can eat that. Uh, But but, uh, the chaff had to be removed in order for the grain to be eaten. And so the grain was beaten, threshed. It was then winnowed, which just means it was tossed into the air so that papery substance would blow away in the wind and only the, the grain, which was heavier, would remain. John says that, that uh, the king is coming, he's gonna, his winnowing fork is in his hand, 
and he's going to, to winnow, he's going to clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff, which uh, was seen as useless, would be burned. And the point of both those illustrations, the one about the tree and the one about the chaff, is that the coming of the king is not an unqualified blessing. The king is, is discerning in his judgment. Uh, remember the situation even for Israel in exile. They were in Babylon because of their rebellion against God. For, but but uh, for, it, for Isaiah, God is coming to dwell, uh, Isaiah 57 said, to dwell with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, God says in Isaiah, nor will I always be angry. You see, God promises the contrite and the lowly that he comes to dwell with them, to show mercy to them, to heal them, and to bring them peace. But in that same passage in Isaiah, God says there is no peace for the wicked. See, there are two groups in Isaiah, one to whom God is going to come and show his blessing, and the other to whom God will show his judgment. And those two groups, they're, they're the, right, the, the wicked on the one hand and the contrite on the other. Uh, they're, They're not the wicked and the righteous, but the wicked and the contrite. So here's John's message. He's saying the king is coming to bring a spiritual restoration for the lowly. And all that comes with that, the peace, the joy, the happiness, the comfort, the healing. But for the wicked, John says, the fires of judgment to those who persist in their rebellion. Unquenchable fire, John says. See, Jesus... Is, is not an unqualified good for all. Maybe that's a weird way of saying it, but it's important. J- John is here using the language of hell, isn't he? The language of unquenchable fire. That makes us a bit uncomfortable in our culture. And yet John is teaching that Jesus is going to bring the fires of hell to judge. Unquenchable fire. And it's this very real coming judgment that's meant to wake us up to the reality and the danger of our situation. God is a righteous king, and as a righteous king, he's one day going to judge the nations. We read this morning in Revelation that every eye would see him and they would mourn. The lowly will receive the blessing of living under God's rule, but the rebellious will receive his unquenchable fire. Now, thankfully, John doesn't leave us there. He, he, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He warns us in the end that it's not an unqualified blessing. But the heart of his message is there in the middle. He spells out for us what it looks like to be lowly and contrite of heart, what it looks like to prepare for the coming of this king. So this brings us to the heart of John's message. If God is coming to bring salvation and restoration and deliverance and joy, but also judgment, how do I get ready? So I'm on the one end and not the other. How, How can I prepare for the coming of King Jesus? Of course, in a word, John says, repent, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what does that mean? Well, in John's ministry, we we see him calling us, calling his hearers to three things. He caused them to confess their sins. He caused them to bear fruit. And he caused them to not trust in in worldly associations. Or to put it differently, he caused them to give up pretense. He caused them to give up performance. And he caused them to give up presumption. It's important as we hear John's call to repentance. And as we see John's ministry, we realize his ministry was to Israel. 
uh, John's ministry was, was, uh, it was it, you see uh, everyone from Jerusalem and Judea coming out to him. So it's almost exclusively uh, Jewish people. These were God's people coming out to John the Baptist. And at this point, according to John, right, it's not the, the irreligious people, the Gentiles, that he's calling to repentance, but it's the religious people, God's people, that need to repent. It's important because we often hear the call to repentance as a call from religious people to irreligious people. Right? Good religious people saying to bad irreligious people, hey, you need to repent. But that's not what John is doing. That's not what he does. He puts his finger actually on three typical uh, religious ways of sinning. Three sinful religious ways of thinking. And he calls us to repent. First, he calls us to give up pretense. Right? As, as religious people, it's easy for us to think that we're already in. Uh, that was true with the Israelites. They were already in the promised land. That must mean they were already in with God. And it's easy for us to think as well that, well, we're in the church, and so we must be doing well. But look at verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, it's uh, significant that it's the Jordan River. Uh, The waters of the Jordan, you may remember, had parted, and Israel crossed over them when they entered into the promised land. And here John has gone back to this significant place in Israel's history, and he's saying we need to start over. We need a new entrance into the land. Uh, Joshua brought Israel in through the the River Jordan. We need a new Joshua to give us a new entrance into a new kingdom. But a new entrance into a new way of doing things brings uh, uh, with it a break with the old. And so that's why John calls them to confess their sin or to give up their pretense. You see, as Israelites, many of them would have been good moral people, right? They had the Ten Commandments. They they kept them for the most part, right? Uh, Their lives might have looked very much like ours on the surface. It's easy for us even to get together on Sunday morning and and, and look at one another and think we we look pretty good, right? We're We're not breaking any one of the Ten Commandments right now, outwardly. But John calls us to give up our pretense, right? We may look good on the surface, but, but he calls us to confess our sins. And this may mean owning up to things that we have done, right, on the outside, so to speak. But often, more often than not, it means confessing what's on the inside, our sinful thoughts, our, our, our sinful desires, our sinful motives. Because no matter how good we look, Jesus will say uh, elsewhere that the heart is full of wickedness and deceit. Jesus knows the heart of man. His eyes pierce into our souls. Again, we read in Revelation this morning that Jesus' eyes were like flames of fire. I think the idea in that image is that his eyes pierce into us. He sees our hearts. Jesus' eyes pierce into our souls. We cannot get into his kingdom on pretense. Just because we look good on the outside, Jesus knows what's really going on inside. And so if we are to come to John when John's hearers came to him, they had to put off pretense. Right? They had to confess their sins, not just things that they have done outwardly, right? but, but the specific corruption of their hearts, their sinfulness, the specific lies and lusts that they had treasured so dear. And then, of course, that drives us back as we see our, our hearts, as we see the lusts and the lies that are there, that drives us back to our sins and the manifestations of that in the way that we live day by day. So John calls his hearers and he calls us not only to, to, to give up pretense on the one hand 
to stop pretending you're better than you are, to confess the, the, the corruption of your hearts, but also to give up performance. Verses 7 and 8 say this, but, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, some religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had come out to John. And, and, and we're not actually told that they had come to be baptized. It just says they came to his baptism. baptism. But John confronts them with, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so clearly some of them at least must have given some indication that they wanted to be baptized by him. They wanted to be baptized to make this break with the old life. Notice John's exhortation. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now John is not saying... Well, confession of your sin is not enough. Once your life is all together, once your life is perfect, then God will accept you. That's not what he's saying. And yet he is saying you come to be baptized. You come to be, participate in this religious activity, to be baptized and confess your sin. That's good. But religious activity in itself means nothing. See, Jesus will say later of these religious leaders that they're hypocrites, that they do religious things, but it has no real meaning for them. John is saying to the religious leaders, give up this sense that religious performance is enough to save you from the judgment to come. It's not. You can't just come and and be baptized and then think you're good. Everything's done. John is saying, uh, if you repent, if you see your sin for what it is, if you confess that to God, your whole life will change as well. Your life will bear fruit, not the fruit of perfection, right, but the fruit of humility, at the very least, the fruit of striving to change. The, the fruit of desiring a new life. See, what God is calling us to is not mere religious activity, but the fruit born out of a changed heart. And so John calls his hearers, he calls them to give up pretense, to stop pretending they're better than they are. He calls them to give up religious performance as if that were enough. And third, he calls them to give up presumption. John's next words to the religious leaders are these in verse 9. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's the basis of your standing with God? If you recognize your your sin and the pervasive sinfulness of your hearts, your standing with God can't be based on how good you are. So what's the basis? Well, the religious leaders in Israel, they, they had something else they could point to. Not their own goodness, but Abraham. They could say, well, we're descendants of Abraham. Of course we'll be saved from God's coming judgment. And it's actually a pretty good argument. Right? I mean, God had given a slew of promises to Abraham. He, he promised to bless Abraham and to bless his children. And so if you're a descendant of Abraham, you, you seem to have a pretty good claim on God's blessings. And yet, as we read through the Old Testament, we see Israel being under God's disciplinary hand again and again. We see Israel being judged. We see Israel going into exile. We see physical descendants of Abraham who don't receive the blessing. And then we see people who aren't physical descendants of Abraham, but but ethnically uh, outside of Israel, coming in and receiving the blessings. And so what makes the difference? Why do some receive the blessing of Abraham and some receive that curse? Well, Paul in Romans 4 actually tells us. He says, The promises come to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's Romans chapter 4. Or more simply, in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, according to Paul, when God promises that Abraham will be the father of many nations, that means Jew and Gentile alike. And because of that, Abraham is the father of those who believe, who share the faith of Abraham regardless of their nationality or ethnicity. You see, there are lots of reasons that you and I might boast Uh, The Jews could boast of being physical descendants of Abraham. Uh, As religious people today, we might boast of belonging to the right church or of growing up Christians all our lives or of believing the right theology or of being moral people. We might boast of being Bible study leaders or active in our church or even boast of being uh, deacons or elders or preachers. But worldly status does not give you standing with God. Right? Whatever your worldly position, uh, whatever you might, worldly position you might hold, it does not make you right with the king of heaven. Well, what does then? If the king is coming with discerning judgment, if he's coming to bless and to judge with fire, how can I be right with him? How can I, how can I be right with the king now? There's only one way for Paul, and that's to share in the faith of Abraham. Faith in Jesus as the king who comes to to live the righteous life we fail to live, to die the death we deserve to die. See, on the one hand, we need to acknowledge our sin. We come, like John called his hearers, come, confess our sins. But on the other hand, we need to put our faith in something other than worldly condition. We put our faith on the king who came to bring blessing by facing judgment in our place. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring blessing, the blessings of the kingdom, by facing the judgment of God's wrath for us. Do you see all that's going on in this passage? There's there's so much, but, but what John is saying is there's a spiritual exile. And it's not what's going on outside of us simply, it's what's going on inside of us. And that spiritual exile is maintained as by our pride, by our lies, by our by our boasting. Because of that, we stay far from God. But John is saying, look, if you will humble yourselves, if you'll see the corruption of your hearts, the emptiness of your religious performance, the powerlessness of your worldly status, that should cause you to long for something else, something more, something only Jesus can bring, God's personal renewing presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. God has come in Jesus to restore the world. He's begun that by pouring out his spirit on his people. Do you see your sin? Do you see your religious pretense? Do you see your pride? Come to Jesus, right? Confess those things to him. He delights to show mercy to the contrite of heart. And he will give you his spirit to renew your heart and to give you a foretaste of things to come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to bring your blessing, to bring restoration, to restore us to yourself, to free us from from the the real exile, exile from you. And we thank you that he came to pour out your spirit so that we might even now partake of the world to come, that we might even now partake of the renewal of all things. Help us to look to Jesus, to put our trust in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.